Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens, a podcast to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum with thoughts, ideas, principles, stories, and questions all geared towards helping teenagers better follow Christ through their teenage years. Hey everybody, welcome again to another week and another edition of the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens. I'm Josh Downs and today's episode we're going to be taking a look at is episode 22 and we're focusing on Joseph Smith, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew 24 through 25, Mark 12 through 13, and Luke chapter 21. That's a fair amount of chapters for one week. And the theme for this week's lesson is the Son of Man shall come. It's all about the second coming. We're not going to get specific into the different prophecies and signs of the the second coming of Christ, but there are some principles that are more related to preparing for that coming. As always, just want to start out first with the context surrounding this week's Come Follow Me material. And that's this. Jesus' disciples must have found his prophecy startling. The mighty temple of Jerusalem, the spiritual and cultural center of the Jewish people, would be destroyed so utterly that there would not be left one stone upon another. Naturally, the disciples wanted to know more. When shall these things be, they asked. Isn't that the common question? We just want to know when. When is something going to happen? Not necessarily how. We just want to know when so we can be prepared for it, right? So it won't catch us by surprise. They also asked, and what is the sign of thy coming? The Savior's answers revealed that the great destruction coming to Jerusalem, a prophecy fulfilled in AD 70, would be relatively small compared to the signs of his coming in the last days. Things that seem even more stable than the temple in Jerusalem will prove to be temporary. The sun, the moon, the stars the nations, and the sea, even the powers of heaven, shall be shaken. If we are spiritually aware, this commotion can teach us to put our trust in something truly permanent. As Jesus promised, heaven and earth shall pass away, yet my words shall not pass away. And whoso treasureth up my word shall not be deceived. I have talked to so many over the years that have been so troubled and unsettled and afraid when it comes to the second coming of Christ. But maybe none so more than the teenage group that I've been associated with. One of the questions I swear I would get asked every year whenever we begin to study the second coming is, Brother Downs, when will the zombie apocalypse be in relation to the second coming? (laughs) Now, young people, I know that there are a lot of zombie movies out there. That seems to be one of the themes that's associated with the end of the world. But please understand that there's nothing in the scriptures that alludes to anything like that. That is not one of the events of the second coming. There are plenty of others, and there's some very scary things, but I think we're safe from a zombie apocalypse. The second coming, though, regardless, can be seen in one of two ways. It really can be seen as absolutely terrifying, or I believe that it can be seen as absolutely wonderful. It all depends on the way that you choose to see it. Now, certainly the signs and events preceding the second coming sound pretty horrible, and there will be a lot of death and destruction. But when has fear ever been taught as a part of our religion? That's the question I want you to focus on. When has fear ever been a part of our doctrine, a part of the gospel? It never has been, and it never will be. And from today's thoughts and and principles, I want to help you better understand why that is, especially as it relates to the second coming. 
And so the first principle that I want to focus on today comes from Joseph Smith Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Because again, it can be unsettling to read about the events leading up to the second coming of Christ. I totally get that. It does not sound fun. But when Jesus prophesied of these events, he told his disciples one thing above all to do. And that was to be not troubled. In Joseph Smith, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, it reads, Behold, I speak these things unto you for the elect's sake, and you also shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all I have told you must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And part of our challenge is, I mean, how can you not be troubled when you hear about earthquakes and wars and deceptions and famines and destruction? Well, that's what I want to help you to recognize with this first principle. I believe that it can become easier for us to follow the Savior's direction to be not troubled when it comes to the events of the second coming, when we use the scriptures as a pattern to remind ourselves why we shouldn't be troubled, because it's all there. It always has been. I mean, there have been periods of terrible death and destruction and famine and plague and pestilence all before in the earth's history, entire civilizations completely wiped out from wickedness. But in each case, it didn't happen without something to help us to not be so troubled by them. In each of these cases, it never happened without plenty of warning and an opportunity to prepare for it. Yes, I mean, the world was wiped out by a flood, but not before prophets warned the people of what was coming and not before they were given ample opportunity to get on the ark to be spared. Yes, Egypt was visited by terrible plagues and even death, but not again without plenty of warning from Moses and protection provided to those that would listen to him. Boy, that's a good one. If you want some scriptural evidence of why it's important to not be troubled at the events coming, uh, leading up to the second coming, look at the events leading up to the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. There are so many similarities and, and patterns there and some amazing things that happen. There are scriptures that talk about how, as an example, flies were sent throughout all of Egypt. But yet in Goshen, which was right next door where the children of, of Israel lived, there were no flies. In fact, when it came time for the flies to be removed, at Moses' word, all the flies left. There was not one fly, it records, that was remained in the land. Now tell me that God is not capable of managing chaos. <laughs> when it comes to flies, I can't even get one fly to leave my house, let alone a swarm of flies in all of Egypt to just instantly leave. But that's the power that God has. As you look through and reference many of those plagues, for the majority of them, Goshen and the children of Israel were spared. And then when the last one, the plague that finally released the children of Israel from Pharaoh's bondage was put into place, they were given ample notice and warning and told what to do to protect themselves from it by putting lamb's blood upon the door. And that's just what God does. He warns and prepares his people. We see that with the destruction of Jerusalem. It certainly was destroyed, as were several Nephite cities throughout all the scriptures, and eventually the entire Nephite civilization, but not without countless warnings from prophets and opportunities to repent and change. And for those that chose to listen to those messages of warning, the Lord often led them away from those cities and from the destruction that was coming. Again, that's what he does. But one of the greatest patterns that I think we can look for and see when it comes to preparing for the coming of Christ is his initial visit to the Nephites. Yes, there was immense darkness and destruction at that visit and at his coming to the Nephite civilization, but 
Again, not before countless warnings and prophecies and opportunities to repent, and as well the protection that was provided to those that did and were considered to be righteous. And I love these verses that kind of teach and remind us of that. I think these are some of the greatest verses that we can turn to in times of worry and and doubt and maybe even fear as it relates to the second coming and move ourselves more towards a state of being not troubled. After some really intense darkness and destruction that happened among that civilization right prior to the Savior's coming, in 3 Nephi chapter 10, verse 12, the scriptures record that, and it was the more righteous part of the people who were saved. And it was they who received the prophets and stoned them not. And it was they who had not shed the blood of the saints who were spared. And then this great verse, and they were spared and were not sunk and buried up in the earth. And they were not drowned in the depths of the sea. And they were not burned by fire. Neither were they fallen upon and crushed to death. And they were not carried away in the whirlwind. Neither were they overpowered by the vapor of smoke and darkness. And now whoso readeth, let him understand. And this is an important point to understand. In the midst of all this chaos, there was order. Those that chose to follow Christ, the key was in the verse before, in verse 12, where it says it was the more righteous part of the people who were saved, and it was they who received the prophets and stoned them not who were spared. And that's the pattern that I want you to see and to remember The Lord has always warned, prepared, and protected his people. Those that love, listen, and follow him. And he always will. It will be no different with the second coming. However, we are told in the chapters of this week's study that no man knoweth the day, the time, and the hour of his coming. Not even the angels in heaven. All we are told is that he will come as a thief in the night. And I think we're all familiar with that phrase, which... If we just focus on that phrase alone, sounds pretty scary. A thief in the night is not something that we want to experience or that we look forward to or that is not associated with fear. However, we often miss the second part of the scripture that references how the Savior will come as a thief in the night. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul writes, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Okay, yeah, we got that part. He continues, For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But then he says this, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. In other words, it's going to be very different for those of us that are following Christ and listening to his prophet and apostles. Ye are all children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. I love those verses because his coming, in other words, will not catch us by surprise. We'll know about it in ways that the world will not and will be prepared for it in ways that the world will not. Now I know about you, but that brings me a lot of peace and comfort and helps me to understand that there is no need to fear it but honestly to celebrate it and to look forward to it with great excitement. Paul refers to its coming as a baby coming into the world, which I think is a great metaphor. Now, I'm obviously not qualified to speak on that experience, but from what I've seen and learned from watching it and and experiencing it through the eyes of others, there is struggle and there is travail, just as Paul says, and certainly a lot of pain. But once that baby is delivered, 
boy, everything changes in an instant to it being the most wonderful of experiences. And I imagine in many ways that's how it will be with the Savior's coming. But we can start looking forward to it now with excitement and preparing for it now. Each and every day is an opportunity to move closer to it. There's a part of me that believes that we are what's holding back His coming. He's waiting for us, not so much for the world to be ready, but for His people to be ready. Because He needs a Zion people to come to. And we're in the process of gathering and creating that within our world and within us. And so when we speak of his invitation to come follow me, I think it's important to understand that that is exactly where he is leading us, to where he is and to where he will come and be. And so the sooner we can get there, the better. Now, a few questions that I think would be helpful to consider as it relates to this principle of be not troubled. First is, what can I do to better be prepared spiritually, physically, and mentally for the Savior's coming? Two, how can I better invite the Savior into my life now, each and every day? If establishing Zion is a key to His coming, and Zion represents unity of heart and mind, then what can I do to establish more of a Zion-type environment in my home, among my brothers and sisters and parents, among my friends and friend groups, within my school and community? How can I contribute to greater unity and love wherever I go, and wherever I am. And young people, I want you to understand that you have more power than you possibly think to be able to create this in the places that you reside in and wherever it is that you might go and find yourself. Elder Holland has called for recently more healers in our world, people that that take upon them the needs of others and look for ways and opportunities to heal and help heal those that are struggling and those that are hurting and those that are afraid. And you have the power to do that. One of my favorite stories in the the Book of Mormon is that of the 2,000 stripling warriors who came at a crucial point in the battle between the Nephites and the Lamanites or the battle between good and evil. They came at a point where the the scales were beginning to tip in the favor of the the Lamanites. That uh, the armies were getting down, they were getting discouraged, they just didn't see how they could possibly win in the end. But then... Here arrives on the scene the 2,000 stripling warriors who begin to to have some amazing victories, some miraculous victories. And the news of their triumphs begin to spread throughout the the rest of the Nephite community. And it instills within them hope, gives them courage and faith to continue to fight and face the, the armies that oppose them to the point where they end up winning in the end. I don't think that that story is in there by coincidence. Young people, I think that you are arriving at just a, a time in the world's history where People are beginning to lose hope. People are beginning to lose faith. The the powers of darkness are very real. And they seem to be winning at times quite a bit. But I believe that your victories, the things that you will accomplish in the days ahead, will give hope and faith and courage to the rest of us to continue to fight and see this thing through to the end. I am excited to hear about the victories that you will be having as you face your own battles with the darkness that exists in this world. And all these things that you can do and are doing right now are helping you to prepare for it and to be not troubled by the events that will be unfolding in the years to come. It might be worth asking, how can I use these principles to overcome the fears that not just I will face in terms of the second coming, but the fears that I face in my life today? 
How can I better bind myself to God's prophets and apostles? How can I better make sure I am reading and studying their words and counsel? Following the prophet is clearly one of the most important parts of the process and the patterns that are all throughout the scriptures when it comes to being prepared and being protected prior to scary events that happen in the world's history. Now, principle two, I want to just take a look at Matthew chapter 25, which contains three amazing parables. It's the parable of the the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the sheep and the goats. For principle number two, I want to focus on the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents. Because the message in each of these is that I must be ready personally for the Savior's second coming. That it's up to me to prepare. As God has not revealed the day or nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh, but he does not want that day to come upon us unaware. So he's given us counsel about how to prepare. And with the, the parable of the, the ten virgins, one of the themes in the main messages is to start preparing now. As you know from the parable, five had prepared and had oil in their lamps and were ready, and the other five had not. And there's a couple great terms to distinguish the two different groups. In verse 2 of chapter 25, it's recorded that five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. The message is to start collecting oil now. Not to wait and to put it off, but to start now. And I think it's kind of like brushing your teeth. It may not be the most enjoyable experience, but we always make sure to do it, right? Because we know that it's going to help us to avoid cavities later on. It's going to help us to be prepared when that time for the visit comes to go to the dentist. And so kind of like brushing our teeth, every time that you read your scriptures or every time that you say your prayers or every time that you attend church or serve others, among so many other things that you can do, it's like putting a drop of oil in your lamp. It's like brushing your teeth. You may not see a lot at first, or after just one time, but over the, the course of an extended period of time, that's when you begin to notice that you've collected quite a bit and that there is a difference that's happening. But it has to be up to you. You have to choose to do it, and you have to choose to do it for you, not for anyone else. It has to be your oil, not anyone else's oil. That's one of the other messages from this parable. It has to come from you. And young people, one of the best places that I know that you can begin to collect oil for your lamps is in seminary. I have to put a plug in there for all those seminary classes that you attend. Right? When you're in seminary, make sure that you use that time to put oil in your lamps. Not high scores on your phone or texts to your friends. There's plenty of opportunity for those things. But when you're in seminary, you have an entire class period dedicated to putting a little oil in your lamps. And yes, one class period may not make a huge difference. Sometimes it does. But if you just do a little bit, each class over the course of a quarter or a semester or an entire year, well, you'll end up seeing that you will have collected quite a bit of oil. In the parable of the talents, there's another aspect of preparing that I believe the Savior is trying to teach. And that's just the importance of increasing what we have. That we're on an individual journey. And that we can't get caught up in comparing what we have been given to what others have been given. Because there will always be those that look like they've been given a little more. But there are also those that seem to have been given less. So the key is to learn to be grateful for whatever it is that you've been given. That it is enough and you are enough. 
In the parable of the talents, there was one that was given five, one that was given three, and one that was given one. And as you know, the five turned the five into ten, the three turned the three into six, and the one took the one and buried it in the ground. And I wonder if a part of the reason as to why he did that is because he got caught looking at what others were given. Well, even if I did my best and turned this one into two, it'll never be as much as the one that has three or the one that has five. So what's the point? Right? When we get down on ourselves and see ourselves as less than, it keeps us right where we are. And that is not why we're here. I worked with a young person recently who had been struggling in school, to which I can relate to very well because I did also. And I recognized early on that a part of his struggle, as it was with mine, was in getting caught in comparing what we were able to do with what others were able to do. For some of my friends, school came very easily. For some of this young person's friends, school came very easily. And so when it didn't for them, as it didn't for me, it was very easy to get to a place of why even try? And I knew that in order for that to change, I had to get them to stop looking at what everyone else was doing and just focus on what they were doing and trying to improve themselves. And you know what? That was the key. And as they did that, he passed his classes. He took what he had and he made something more of it. And he felt so good in his accomplishment. No others might look at it as like he failed, like, oh, he didn't get as many A's as somebody else or whatnot. Well, I didn't look at it that way. He succeeded. See, a part of becoming more Christ-like is not looking down on others and thinking that they should have done more instead of celebrating what it is that they have done. That's just as an important attribute to develop as it is to not look up at others wondering why we seem to have less. We just don't know what each other has been given and why. All that matters is improving what you have been given. Because the truth is, the reward, especially as you look at this parable, is the same. As the Savior said to each of them that improved what they had been given, regardless of the amount, because thou hast been faithful over a few things, thou shalt be made ruler over many. Enter into the joy of the Lord. The person that received the two talents and turned them into four was told the exact same thing as the person that received five and turned them into ten. And I have no doubt that the person that had only been given a single talent, if he would have improved upon that and turned it into two, he would have been told the same thing as well. What keeps us moving forward is us and the fear that we have in not being enough as we are. So don't be afraid thinking that you can't do something or that you're not good enough because you are. You have everything that you need to improve on what you have. And that is what preparing for the second coming is all about. We need to start now, if we haven't, and it's all about improving who we are. We all know the opposite of this counsel very well, don't we? How many of us have been caught unprepared for a test or an assignment or waited until the last minute to do something? Yeah, that's not a fun experience, is it? So doing these things now is the best way to prepare and to feel prepared for the Savior's coming. Some questions to consider about preparing for the Savior's coming. One, what are you doing each day to add a little oil to your lamps? What activities are you engaged in each day that might be considered foolish in terms of preparing yourself for the Savior's coming? What activities are you involved in right now that might be considered wise? What can you do to find your own testimony and not rely so much on your parents or friends? Are you grateful for all that you have been given? 
Or are you stuck comparing yourself with others, thinking that you don't have enough? How can you be more grateful for the talents and for everything that you've been given? How can you better see what you have instead of fixating on what you don't have? And finally, how has fear and idleness been a hindrance in your life and in your personal growth and development? And what can you do to change both? Now, for our last principle today, principle three, I want to take a look at Matthew chapter 25, verses 32 through 46, which is the parable of the sheep and the goats. I absolutely love, love, love this parable. And for you young people, this is a profound one and can be a profound one for you throughout your entire life if you will listen carefully to what is being taught here. And I just love the order of each of these parables. It's almost as if the Lord is trying to teach us in their order the sequence of of things we can do to prepare for his coming. First, he's teaching us about the absolute need to prepare now in the parable of the, the ten virgins. And then he seems to be teaching us in the parable of the talents that the best way to prepare for his coming is to improve ourselves. And then in the final parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats, he seems to be implying that the best way to improve ourselves is to improve the lives of others. The concept is that when I serve others, I am serving God. And if you wonder how the Lord will judge your life, all we need to do is really read the parable of the sheep and the goats. Because that's the message of the parable of the sheep and the goats. In verse 31, he says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on the right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he tells them and and all of us what they did to prepare for it and why they're receiving it. When he says, For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. I was alone, and you invited me to sit with you. I was being made fun of, and you told the others to stop. I was struggling with learning something, and you took the time to help me to learn it. I was annoying at times, and you put up with me. I wasn't a part of the in crowd, but you weren't embarrassed to be seen with me. I didn't have any friends, and you became my friend. I'd never been to a football game, and you invited me to go with you and your friends. I never get asked out to dances, and you asked me to one. I walked to each class alone, and you saw me and walked with me. Very few people even knew my name, but you took the time to find out what it was. I was having a hard day, and you made me laugh. I felt no one cared about me, and you smiled at me. I wasn't going to church or to my young men or young women's groups, and you invited me to go with you. I was sitting alone at lunch or in Sunday school or in class, wherever I was, and you came and sat by me. The Lord then says in the parable that then the righteous shall answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we basically any of these things? To which he replies this great lesson, that inasmuch as ye do it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Now, there really isn't much more that can be said about this parable and about this principle. But doesn't it just make you want to look for more ways and opportunities to do these things more for others? To do these things more for Christ? 
I know it sure does for me, and I hope it does for you as well. Now, a couple of key questions to just think about as it relates to this principle and parable. One is, why do you think caring for those in need would help prepare you to inherit the kingdom of God? What have been some ways that you have been there for Christ by being there for others? What can you do to better look for and act on opportunities to help Christ by better helping others around you? What can you do to use your gifts that you've been given to bless and lift others? Boy, those are some great and powerful questions. Now, as you've gone through and listened today, I hope that a couple things have happened. One, that you're a little less troubled at the thought of the coming of Christ than maybe you were before. <laughs> that you recognize it doesn't have to be as scary or seem as scary as what it sometimes seems to be. That we will have everything that we need to be prepared for it. And that one of the greatest things that we've been given to be prepared for the second coming of Christ is a prophet. And that as we listen and follow his counsel, he will guide and direct us to be prepared and to be protected. And that one of the best things that we can do to begin to prepare right now, each and every day, by putting a little oil in our lamps, little things that we can do each and every day that help inspire us to be better because that is the way that we put oil in our lamps is by growing and developing as an individual. And the best way to grow and develop as an individual and to improve our own lives is by improving the lives of others. When we take those three principles and begin to actively apply them in our lives, fear will decrease, especially as it relates to the second coming because we will begin to feel more and more prepared every day and to have faith that we will be protected in the way that God protects his people and that God's will, no matter what it is, is always right and that he has the power to do all things for our good and for our benefit. Hopefully that's been helpful to you today and will continue to be helpful as you think on the and study the, the second coming of Christ. So many other great lessons and principles to be found in, in your study this week. I hope that you have an amazing week studying these chapters. And also just as a quick heads up, I'm going to be including somewhat of the, the transcripts of each of these episodes. We'll just call them the show notes. I don't have them word for word, but I have a lot of the quotes, the scripture references, stories, those kind of things typed up. I will be including them in the, the show notes um, for each episode as well as just on my website, joshdowns.com, for you to access. I've had several requests come through for them, especially as uh, maybe it will help uh, teach uh, classes that you might have or give talks you might have to give. I'm more than happy to help and to make those available for you. So be watching for those in the coming days. I hope to have most of them up this week for you to be able to access. As always, please remember that that person is greatest and most blessed and joyful whose life most closely approaches the pattern of the Christ. This has nothing to do with earthly wealth, power, or prestige. The only true test of greatness, blessedness, joyfulness, is how close a life can come to being like the Master Jesus Christ because, well, He is the right way, the full truth, and the abundant life, and He invites all of us to come follow me. So let's follow Him better this week and become better as we follow Him. Until next time, have a great week, everyone. I'm Josh Downs, and you've been listening to Come Follow Me for Teens.